Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Arc's FYI podcast. Today I'm speaking with Yashai Frankel. Yashai serves as the Vice President and Director General of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He has worked for close to 20 years at Intel Corporation, where he managed the company's new technology group and focused on artificial intelligence and computer vision. Yashal, welcome to the podcast. Hi, James. I'm very happy to be here. Israel is a fascinating country, and despite being so small, it's contributed so much to the world. And today, I would say it's probably one of three countries in the world that has a very unique innovation and entrepreneurial model, along with China and the U.S. I thought maybe we can cover, just at a high level, what makes Israel so different? How has its, perhaps, geography and history shaped its mentality to entrepreneurship? And how has that really impacted the sort of companies, such as you know, Mobileye and Mellanox, that's come out of Israel? I'm very proud and very happy to come from an Israeli university representing the Hebrew University and having worked in an Israeli subsidiary of a multinational of Intel. I think what we have in terms of the innovation culture in Israel, we have three things working for us. Number one, which is a foundation, is very good education. Okay, Israel boasts one of the highest percentages of university and college graduates in the world. Having this strong foundation of education is a baseline. Okay, people do not innovate from thin air. They need to be well-educated. Number two, there's an element of survival, right? You mentioned China and the U.S., two giants, two fascinating countries. Israel is at the other extreme. We are a small country unfortunately surrounded by people who don't always like us so much. And survival is the mother of many, many inventions. You know, look, for example, security-wise, you know, many, many things came from the defense and security sector. Look at another major issue we face throughout the years, which is the shortage of water, large population, a semi-arid country. This necessity really turned Israel into a powerhouse of water-related technologies, okay? The third angle, I think it is something in the natural psyche, or part of the culture, which is the fact that people do not accept authority. People like to question. We have this term in Yiddish called chutzpah. I will tell you, you know, as a manager in the tech industry, I very often found it easier to manage 200 Americans rather than 20 Israelis. Because, you know, you tell the American, you know, do something. I'm the manager. I've thought it out. He will go, she will go and do it. In Israel is, well, I think different. Hey, you know, I'm the manager, but no, I think different. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? People question, but this questioning very often brings you to rethink, to reconsider, it creates this culture of openness, of discussion, 
of dispute, of argument, which sometimes is harder to maintain, yet the results, the outcome, I think, is very positive sometimes. Well, I have never actually heard that. I think we've all heard the classic case of the Asian culture versus the Western culture, of the Western culture being more pro to opening, questioning the So Israel the is the Western culture on steroids. Wow. Sometimes it's, by the way, it's good, yields great things. Sometimes it drives you nuts. I mean, come on, guys, let's get things done, okay? But sometimes it has many, many good things, and Israel in this respect is America on steroids. I see. Is there a more root cause of that chutzpah that you talk about? Or is that cultural going back to basically? I think there are many. I'm not a sociologist. I really think it's about survival. There's something about survival. There's also something, you know, when you look at the Jewish culture, if you heard the Talmud, which is the Jewish law, the Talmud, it's not a book of laws. It's a book that records arguments. People are studying law, they argue, they dispute, they disagree. The national ethos is that of arguing, of trying to get to the root of things. That's part which for 2,000 years, this is the book that Jews studied and learned. I think the Talmud is a large part of this subculture. I see. Intel has quite a large global presence, and they've made a point to invest a lot in Israel. They have uh, semiconductor fabs there and design teams in Israel. After they had that architectural crisis in the early 2000s, it was actually the Israeli team that came up with the Nihalem architecture that saved them for what basically is their present. What makes Israel special in terms of how it's developed as empowering the semiconductor industry? It seems like quite a few companies, Intel, of course, Mellanox, and others have come out of Israel. It's the fruit of two things. One is really this unique culture in Israel, and the culture of dispute, of argument, does lead very often to superior products, superior designs. That is one thing. On the flip side, I must say a lot of it is an act of luck. It is very interesting. In the early 1970s, a Hebrew university professor called Dorf Roman, who is, in fact, the inventor of the double EEPROM, moved from the West Coast back to Israel, he requested the company to set up a small shop in Israel. That's how Intel Israel came about in 1974. And I really think that the success marries the innovation and culture of the Israelis with the rigor and amazing capabilities, again, of these uh, large technological multinationals, be them Intel, be them Google, who has a very large Israeli presence. It's Facebook nowadays. Amazon has just set a very big shop in Israel. I think it's a combination of these two strengths. You've seen how innovation has played out both from your position in the university as well as your time at Intel. And I think your position is that, of course, entrepreneurship is fantastic, but it is no substitution for fundamental research that is really only ideally done in a university setting. Could you tell us a bit more about that? That is correct. You know, I think there's very often the notion that we can be college dropouts and be successful. All we need is just a smart, bright idea, a nice garage, and a lot of coffee. That is the public culture, I think, image of tech. It is very, very wrong. Some people make it lucky. It happens sometimes. On whole, the fantastic revolution, technology revolution, we see in the past 70 years is driven far and far most by innovations that came from the universities. It's the computer, you know, the fathers of computers. It's Alan Turing and von Neumann, the two fathers of the computer, both universities. The transistor, universities and later industry. If I look very recently, the explosive growth of AI in the past five years, 
Jan Lacoon, Glenn Hinton, universities, academics, right? These big things come from the academia. And I very often talk to younger students and people have this misconception. I don't need university. I can do without it. I think it is a big mistake. The universities, number one, provide the rigor, important. They provide the background and the tools. And the academic research has no substitution. Really, the big inventions will almost always come from this academic research. It seems like they serve research from universities as well as the entrepreneurial startup community to serve different parts of the pipeline. The seeds of technology, if you will, comes from the universities. And then maybe decades down the track, we see independent, just people who are in the startup community take those ideas, which have since evolved a lot, and then turn them into perhaps multi-billion dollar companies. It seems like they're not fundamentally at odds with each other. It's not like I'm choosing between doing research or actually productizing something. Sometimes productizing a technology can have huge impact. I do not disagree. You know, I think both things are important. And productizing, again, in many ways is crossing the T's and dotting the I's. When you want to have a finalized and polished product, universities are never tasked to do this thing. I fully agree. All I'm saying is people nowadays tend to overlook, tend to marginalize the place and importance of the academic training, academic background, and academic research. And I think that this is very wrong. And when I say wrong, it's wrong from the point of view of do we need to pay for academic research governmentally? And in the other extreme, you know, me as an individual, okay, I'm a young graduate, I'm 17 years old, should I start working for Google? Or is there value for the three, four year rigor of academia? And I think there's no replacement for that. That's interesting. I heard a similar point of view, actually, from Professor Massacloud of Syracuse University. He came in a few weeks ago, and he said he's very passionate about AI and where it's taking us, but he feels like we've kind of consumed the dividends that were, we kind of put the initial seeds in a few decades ago, and now we're hitting a, maybe a plateau in AI, and we need more fundamental research to get over this hump. But right now, all the excitement seems to be, can I build a deeper and cooler neural net? Look, I'm not an expert like this person you mentioned. That's my personal opinion. No, we are somewhat overhyping the current AI revolution. Yes, we are eating the very sweet fruits of algorithms developed 20, 30, and even 40 years ago. And we're enjoying in parallel the tremendous advances driven primarily by Moore's law of compute power. Okay, when you marry these two things together, that is what we're seeing right now. And indeed, we should never neglect the basic research. We need to do the research on its own. It is important to pursue knowledge on its own. And by the way, if you talk about us eating the sweet fruit of AI of 30 and 40 years ago, let's look at a different domain. Look at quantum physics. We are just about the founder of the Hebrew University was Albert Einstein, who received his Nobel Prize almost 100 years ago. And you look at quantum physics, which started off in the 1920s of the previous century. We are now starting to see the beautiful results. You know, look at quantum information. Look at the initial quantum computers, which I think hold tremendous trends, tremendous uh, promise. Sometimes you see the results of your basic research 20 years and sometimes 100 years after it happened. And we should never, never neglect the basic research taking place in universities. Do you feel like students enrolling in universities today have a 
maybe a dimmer view of the trade-offs they're making? Are they considering, are not enough people getting to the higher levels of degrees and the PhDs and instead dropping out and pursuing opportunities in, in industry? I would love to see many more students pursuing their graduate degrees and pursuing research and so on. But I don't think it is any different from 20 or 30 years ago. This tension of, you know, the brightest and best, do they want to go to the industry or remain in academia, has always been. I don't think anything has changed dramatically in the past 20 years. Despite all the very, very fancy press about unicorns and getting rich and all this? You know, it varies. I mean, just wait for the next bus, which can happen a month from now or a day from now or five years down the road. These things, you know, we have these ups and downs, right? We have these ups and downs. You know, when you look, it's very interesting, look at the graph of the number of graduate students in computer science on the graph of the Wall Street earnings of tech companies, and you'll see this inverse relationship, okay? The bubble goes bust in 2000, wow, enrollment shoots up. Things improve in 2010, enrollment shoots down. You see these ups and downs. I'm not worried. I don't think we've changed something fundamental in the balance here between the two. That's encouraging to hear. As the director general of the Hebrew University, and how are you steering the university in terms of engaging and making sure you guys are on the right path to help both the fundamental research and to strike the right balance with kind of partnerships with industry? This is a very interesting question. I think that historically, universities in general, Hebrew University was no exception, was in a very pure type of situation. You know, ideologically, the position of the university is we do pure research. Do not bother us with the applied research, with translational research, and so on and so forth. And you have this dichotomy. You know, university does research. It's white-starched professors who think only about equations. Things have changed in the world, specifically in the Hebrew University in the past 10 to 20 years. We have made many steps to adopt and to embrace the technological world. Our professors, who are very heavily and deeply engaged in basic research, do not shy away from trying to find the applications. If I can give you two examples, you know, one outstanding example is Mobileye, the autonomous vehicle giant acquired by Intel two years ago for uh, over $15 billion, was created and run by a Hebrew University professor, Amnon Shashua, and many of his co-partners also in the university. And Professor Shashua to this day teaches classes at the Hebrew University. He has active students. This has never been in conflict. One of the best-known drugs right now for Alzheimer's was developed on our university. It stemmed from basic research, and yet the professor, Professor Martha Rosen, who invented this or found the foundation of this drug, continued to take her basic research into real life, into improving people's quality of life. We no longer see a contradiction between the two. Does the university have programs that allow students to both get a taste of industry and maybe take some of their the output of their research from the university out into the real world? I think Stanford pioneered some of the early models of how you can do that. What is it like from the Hebrew University? The answer is a very strong and resonant yes. Number one, in the past 55 years, we've had a TTO, a technology transfer company, supporting, assisting the transfer 
from basic research to applied research to actual companies and ventures. What we've opened a couple of years ago is a center of innovation and entrepreneurship, which aims for and foremost to change the very culture. Okay, so whereas I think we all perceive a student as a passive entity listening to a professor teaching a class, this is no longer the case. The student is not this passive vessel. We expect, we want the student to be active, to be an entrepreneur, and to be an innovator. Now, when I say an innovator, it doesn't necessarily mean go and innovate, create a company. It means, before everything else, create the startup of yourself. The young students of today will change many more jobs, will need to define themselves, market themselves. And for that purpose, we want to grow a student body that is independent, that knows to define, that is driven, that is not passive, that is proactive, not reactive. We have mandatory classes in entrepreneurship, mandatory. And all these steps are taken to infuse this culture of uh, innovation. That's awesome that you guys have mandatory classes for entrepreneurship. I think when I read the critiques of business school from venture capitalists on Twitter, they would say that schools like the Harvard Business School are designed, it's called a master of business administration, not a master of creating a business, but administering a business. You're already going into maintenance mode for a lot of So, so I, I will say in defense of Harvard, I think they're doing a wonderful job, okay? And let's defend them. They're doing a fine job, and I think many Harvard MBAs are creating wonderful businesses. But indeed, but indeed, I think this is a valid point. Studies when I did my MBA in the Hebrew University 16 years ago, I was passive. Yes, I had one or two projects where we had to create something. I was mainly passive. What was the MBA course like 16 years ago? Did it have this notion of your job is to go out there and create the next great company? Or was it more of how do I manage a world-class enterprise? So it was more how to manage an enterprise. Okay, in other words, we studied many things. You get a breadth of things, which, by the way, you're not exposed, okay? So you study marketing, law the various financial angles you need to do in such and such, but it was more how to run a large company, which I think, by the way, served me well. We've changed. It's interesting. I teach a course in our MBA program in the Hebrew, and there's no test in my class. There's an assignment, a pretty big one, which is about creating a venture. By the way, on paper, I do not expect the students to go and create the venture. That is, you know, all I tell them, guys, girls, Fill up these 30 pages, please, with the venture you will create based upon things, tools you've learned upon it. And some of them, by the way, are tech companies. The nicer ones in my eyes are companies or ventures around social initiatives. And in order to create a viable social initiative, you need to be a business person. You know, it's no longer enough to be a person with a wide and big and open heart. You need to be a business person to create a social initiative. We try to teach our students these things. How long have you been teaching at the university? For two and a half years, not much. I taught a lot beforehand in Intel, but in the university for about two and a half years. Okay. Well, maybe directly or indirectly, do you see a difference in students' mentalities or just uh, how quickly they're able to learn from maybe 10, 15 years ago versus today? It seems like, at least from where I sit, there's a lot more self-learning now with the internet, just having endless resources. It's very easy to consume. Has there been a fundamental shift in student culture and how they learn? So I, I will say two observations. Again, take it for what it is, right? Number one, the attention span has gone dramatically down. Dramatically. And I talk about my students. I'm talking about my children. 
I'm a product of a generation where we could sit for 45 minutes in a class and listen, give or take, you know, attention fluctuates, we could listen for 45 minutes. My feeling nowadays that the attention span has gone down to probably 10 to 15 minutes. I've never studied, I've never written a PhD about it, and I try to structure my classes in 10 to 15 minute modules, do breaks in the middle, it can be questions, can be you know, all kinds of other things, that's number one. Number two, there's no doubt we are moving to the age of blended learning. Now, when I say blended, you know, look at the MOOCs, Massive Online Open Courses. Sorry, guys, it's been a colossal failure, okay? MOOCs have been a failure because the percentage of people who've started and completed a MOOC runs between 2 to 3%. Coursera, edX, Udacity, you name it. However... The old school let's stand in front of a whiteboard and teach is also not the one. And we are moving into an age of blended education. That is, yes, some portions should become online, self-learned. Some are class-led. By the way, there's no textbook. You know, we will see things developing. They depend upon the discipline, upon the lectures, upon the class, upon the level and the stage where people are. I must say, as a university, as teachers, it is much harder. It's much easier to come and say my script for 45 or 90 minutes. It's much tougher, you know, at the Hebrew University. We have a dedicated team whose job in life is to circulate between the different professors, provide a very wide menu of technologies, of tools, of approaches, just a team of advisors whose job is let's make the teaching experience more interesting, more varied, and so on. Have you found that the kids these days, they come in, they already possess knowledge that in the past they wouldn't logically have possessed? Sorry, they possess bits of information. Knowledge is much more than bits of information. Knowledge, I think, is about the ability to actively understand it, pursue it, question it. And many of them do come, again, with these more bits of information. They can say smart things in class. But I think what we're looking for when I say we, by the way, it can be a class in ancient Jewish texts, and it can be a class in AI. We are looking for the students who have the critical thinking skills, who know more than anything else, who know to ask the right questions. And I think it takes years, by the way, of rigor to be exposed, to learn, to do the hard work. And, it, and again, I think that the best student, the best employee, by the way, is one who knows to ask the right questions. The answers are the simple part. Ask the right questions. And it takes years to learn it. And I think that today's students, by the way, have a long way to go. And listening to a course in Khan Academy is nice and it's important. It's a far away from what it means to be a student. Okay, It's not about amassing knowledge. It's about having active knowledge. Something that is alive, that can be used, can be morphed. You've got to be active there. From where you sit... Today, we're consuming a lot of the dividends of innovation we created a few decades ago. What seeds are we sowing today do you think we'll be harvesting maybe 10, 20 years from now that's going to really transform the world? So if I would know, by the way, the real answer, I wouldn't tell you and I would probably be a billionaire, okay? We don't know. The real answer is we do not know. And I, I mentioned before, I think... That or what the, are you excited about? The classroom example, again, is AI. AI in the 1980s and 1990s was this boring, dying discipline. And look, it exploded on the scene with this fantastic success. Nonetheless, okay, what am I excited about? I'm more excited, by the way, not about necessarily the fundamental research. I'm mainly excited about the ability to marry different disciplines, different realms of knowledge together. 
I want to give you two examples. Quantum physics. As I said, it's on the scene for almost 100 years. Only now are we starting to see the first fruits of this coming into action. In many, many of the cases, the reason why we can put quantum physics to play is because of the advances we've made in nanoscale science and technology. So these advances in nanoscale coming from the world of chemistry, a little bit physics, are the ones that finally let us, if we want to study all kinds or make quantum effects come into play, you need to be nanometric scales. To be nanometric scale, you can do it only now. So here is this combination, this marriage of basic modern physics with a variety of science and technology that came from a different domain. Let's take a different example. Computational medicine. Medicine of the future is no longer only doctors with white coats and stethoscopes and so on and so forth. Medicine without computers is worthless. Because tomorrow, when I want to come and analyze a patient, try and provide a remedy, I need to have the DNA sequence of that person. If, God forbid, that person has a tumor, I better have the DNA sequence of that tumor, understand what went wrong. Hence, this marriage of medicine and computers, I think, is critical. And I do not know what basic science we're doing today we will see the dividends of in the future, I do know very strongly that we've not yet even touched or scratched the surface in terms of the dividends we can get by merging together different disciplines, different fields, get the people working together and seeing what comes together. Again, in the Hebrew University, our two biggest projects, by the way, are about putting our physics and chemists together, about putting our computer scientists and life scientists together. That is where we believe you will see the tremendous dividends. We certainly agree with that. Everything we do at ARC is also around these intersections of multiple technologies. Uh, I sit next to Sam. He works on robotics. I work on AI. And so we have conversations about how those two are merging. Same thing with uh, Manisha and I kind of looking at how basically we're using deep learning to accelerate drug discovery. So everywhere we see that the edges are blurring and some of the most interesting markets are created when you have two technologies blend together. From a university's perspective, how are you guys structuring the courses so that students can actually be more multidisciplined? This is a very tough question, and I'll say why. Because we all agree that the cross-pollination, the cross-disciplinary activities are the ones that will yield these great dividends. On the flip side, bear in mind, we are educators. And part of the question is pedagogically, what is the right approach and sometimes I feel it takes the two to three years to build a person's proficiency in a certain discipline. So in other words, you know, look at a chemist. Unfortunately, by the way, unfortunately, I think you do need the two years of very pure, direct, exact chemistry. It is only after this person, the student, has created this professional persona, I'm a chemist, at that point is that person... Are ripe, capable to come and say, okay, now I want to see other disciplines. But, you know, uh, unfortunately, again, pedagogically, if you go too early in the cross-disciplinary, I'm afraid you create people who do not have a discipline, who are colorless. At the end of the day, the rainbow will be melodramatic here. The rainbow is a collection of many different colors. People do need to first have their professional or academic persona and only later pursue, you know, hence... At least our, our philosophy is in the undergraduate, we do 
put the emphasis primarily on a certain given discipline. When you move into the graduate degrees, that is where you start to see the lines blurring. You really want to see people from different disciplines start to interact. Again, that is as a rule. You know, you have your exceptions. I was a computer science, you know, major. I loved my biology courses. But, but you need to create this professional scientific persona. That is fascinating. That's almost like an inversion of the U.S. system, where in, in the undergrad liberal arts system, you go very wide in the first few years. And then in your postgrad, then you develop specialties. In your description, it's almost like you first go deep, then you... You know, judging by GDP, the U.S. system is very not bad, right? Let's, <laughs> let's give our U.S. friends uh, the credit. You know, you have different schools of thought. In some respects, I think the Israeli system reflects more of the European school. These are different approaches. I'm sure they, again, eventually we, we hope they will lead to good results. This is our approach, and we feel it served our student body in our country pretty well. But you have many different approaches, right? They're all legitimate. You guys have, I think, an MD computer science program, is that right? That's correct. So just uh, two years ago, we opened this fascinating program for real geniuses. You know, I, I would not qualify where we combine MD and computer science. So basically, in the first years of the pre-med years, instead of doing a three-year pre-med of studying the fundamentals of medicine, it turns into a four-year program combining both pre-med and a full degree in computer science. And we've seen from other cases, we believe this will yield the people who, from again, from the very young professional age, will not shy away, will feel at home in both the life sciences and the computer and data sciences. As we strive to create the cadre of our future researchers, we think this is an essential program, and we're very happy with it so far. Awesome. The Hebrew University is not just doing interesting work in Israel. It's also doing outreach outside of Israel, and I think you guys have an event coming up in New York. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about what you're doing on a global scale and what you're hoping to achieve? So, you know, number one, I think we all know, right? The academic world is a world without borders. Once you put borders, once you confine, once you try to limit, you've lost it. It's a world without borders. And for us as well, it's a world without borders. We have agreements, which when I say agreements, it's students exchanges, researcher exchanges with more than 300 universities worldwide, all of whom in the top 500, many in the top 100 in the world. We encourage our students to go abroad, other students to come to us, you know, fostering a very strong international flavor, brand, and energy, I would say. What we are, you just mentioned, at the very nice conference, the Nexus Israel, which will be in May here in New York, where we feature Israeli innovation, some of our leading researchers to display the fruits of some of this, and to really foster a discussion in an environment where we discuss, where we bring about, and just bring out all these great ideas that we think will lead us into the future. Are you guys bringing academia industry both over here? To we will bring both. When I say academia, it's, you know, Professor Daniel Kahneman, okay, Nobel laureate who studied in our university. It means some leading investment bankers. It means Professor Amnon Shashua from Mobileye. It's a wide variety of people whose job is to take people for one day and just turn their brain inside out to stimulate the thoughts, the ideas, the innovation to transform, you know, the way we think. That sounds like a great conference. For anyone interested, it is on May 6th, is that right? That's correct. And the website to register is nexusisrael.org, I believe. In any case, Google Nexus Israel, that should come up for the event in coming in May. 
Yashal, thank you so much for joining the podcast. It's been such a wonderful time talking to you. Thank you, James. Very interesting, enriching. Thank you so much. Thank you. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.